Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. Uh, In his book, The God Delusion, atheist writer Richard Dawkins writes, to be fair, much of the Bible is not systemically evil, but just plain weird. As you would expect of a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents, composed, revised, translated, distorted, and quote-unquote improved by hundreds of anonymous authors, editors, and copyists unknown to us, and mostly unknown to each other, spanning nine centuries. Now this morning, we're taking a look at Article 4, and we're going to be asking the question, what is the Bible? What's the purpose of the scriptures? Is it, as Dawkins claims, weird, chaotically cobbled together? Is it this uh, anthology of disjointed documents that uh, we've kind of made them to be one book, but there are actually a few different writings in each writing, where its writings composed, revised, translated, distorted, and even improved to make the story look better by hundreds of anonymous authors over time. To simplify our time, we'll just be asking these two questions. What is the Bible, and why does the Bible matter to us? So the first question will be a little bit more, yeah, a little bit more history lesson. But I think it's important for us to understand what is within these two covers here. And then we'll get more into practical and hopefully encouraging of uh, why does the Bible matter to us today. Just a reminder, if you guys have any questions, uh, write them down and make a note of them, and I will try and allot some time at the end for any Q&R. But yeah, okay, so first question, what is the Bible? Before we actually go into what the Bible is, just want to address some of the common misconceptions of what the Bible is not. Uh, So B-I-B-L-E, and I'm not talking about the children's song, Got that in my head a lot lately because Rowan has that on her uh, Apple Music playlist. But no, I had, a, I had seen a sticker on binders in my common uh, Christian community at high school that a lot of people had this sticker on there that said, basic instructions before leaving earth. Made the Bible into an acronym. The Bible is not an acronym. Uh, it's anything but basic. Um, it's hardly only instructions. And I would say, well, here, the primary point of said instruction, if you guys were with us Thursday night, we talked through what the point of the law was. In Romans 3.19, Paul writes, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world may be held accountable to God. But here we go, verse 20, for no human being will be justified in his sight by deeds prescribed by the law, for what? For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the law, which is really just the first couple books of the Old Testament, uh, even that are not instructions on how we leave earth. It's not like the path to get out of earth. Um, No, actually the main intent of the law was to show that we didn't measure up to God's character. We were incongruent with his character. And then these instructions make up a small portion of the entire book. The entire 66 books in the Bible are not just instructions. And lastly, I think by saying before leaving earth kind of puts this misconception out there that our goal is to get out of here and get to heaven, whereas the story of Scripture, as we've been talking about, is more about heaven reuniting on earth, that God redeeming all of creation. Yes, there will be this temporary heaven somewhere for those who have died, but in the end, heaven will be restored and redeemed. God will rejoin his creation in a renewed earth here. Another misconception of what the Bible is, a magic eight ball or a fortune cookie. How many of us have done this? We've been like, I just aren't hearing from God. I'm going to flip open my Bible, read this verse, and hopefully he tells me something. It's kind of a risky thing. (laughs) It's okay. We've all done it. I've done it a lot. Um, But that's not really what the scriptures, how they are to be used. That's not how they are to be read. I don't think we do that with any sort of piece of writing or uh, literature of any sort where we just open up a page and hope this 
teaches us something. You can do that with particular ones like Proverbs or Psalms, but in general, that's a pretty difficult and I would say I wouldn't advise uh, reading the scriptures that way. Can the Spirit of God speak to us in that moment? Yes. Will they? I'd say unlikely, and I don't advise it. Another misconception of what the scriptures are, a book about how to become a better person. I do think that purpose in itself is just antithetical to the gospel. It's not the point of scripture. The point of following Jesus is not to become a better person. The point of the gospel is to know God. A result of that is that we become more and more better, if you will. We become more and more like Jesus, but that's not the point. It's not a book, it's not a how-to book, it's not a self-help book in your local bookstore. If anything, when we give non-Christians that, like I was given when I was an agnostic atheist, um, it was not helpful for someone to say, read this, it'll teach you how to be a better person. It was not helpful, because you start reading stuff right away, and in Genesis, you're like, what is going on? How is this a better person? There's a lot of weird stuff going on there. You go to the fourth, uh, well, and then one more point as to, a lot of people may have this misconception. We may not say it this way, but essentially, the Bible is not a book that just fell out of the sky. That it kind of came, and, and it's this perfect thing that came bound, even though there weren't books until, you know, recent couple centuries, it was not that simple. And we'll talk through what that means. So let's talk about what the Bible is. The Bible's not one book, but it's actually a library. Uh, in Spanish, if you're familiar, biblioteca means library. So it's actually one book, compi a compilation of 66 different writings. In the Roman Catholic Church, there's 73, and even in the Orthodox Christian Church, they can have up to 82 pieces of writing that they affirm as scripture. More on that in a moment. But in the Bible, there are historical narratives, there's poems, there's letters, there's biographies, songs, wisdom, prophecies, and apocalyptic writings. So we have, if you look at your table of contents, and I know that maybe some of you are like, I know this, but we're just gonna walk it through. If you look at your table of contents, you've got an Old Testament and a New Testament. Now let's start with the Old Testament. The Old Testament has Right there, 39 pieces of writing. And we'll walk through how they're arranged and what they are and so forth. But the Old Testament can be also referred to as the Hebrew Bible, the First Testament, the Old Covenant. It's, it is the compilation of writings that Jesus and the early church in Acts would have regarded as their scriptures. So it, it kind of blew me away early on in my faith to realize, oh yeah, Jesus didn't have the Bible. Or Paul didn't have the Bible like we have. When they refer to the scriptures, they're referring to the Old Testament. It's kind of a duh moment, but yeah, they didn't have that then. So when they're quoting scripture, they're referencing the Old Testament. Later on towards the end, they are potentially adhering to writers like Paul as authors of scripture. But for the early church, they would have used what's referred to as, the phrase is called the Septuagint. It's LXX, it's Roman numeral 70. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. So why does this matter? Well, this helps us because some of us, as we read New Testament quotes, if you ever looked at your Bible and you've seen like Jesus quotes something or Paul quotes something from the Old Testament, and then you actually, you look at the footnote and you go and look at the passage in the Old Testament and they're not exactly the same all the time. That's because they're reading a translation. They're not reading the, the original Hebrew writings they're reading the Greek translation of the Hebrew writings. Does that make sense? So, to elaborate a little bit more on that, the reason why this existed, this guy named Ptolemy, with a silent T at the beginning of his name, really cool name, throwing it on our list for a potential kid, um, P-T-O-L-E-M-Y, the second of Egypt, he commissioned 70 scholars, that's why it's called LXX, the Septuagint. He commissioned 70 scholars to translate the Hebrew Bible for an ancient library in, or the library in Alexandria, which was essentially the hub of human understanding at that point. That was the central of, uh, the center of human culture then. So for them, yeah, let's, this, this religion, let's get their writing, but in the predominant language of our day, which was Greek, not Hebrew. And so they translated it, uh, it took many, many decades, 
It actually was 72 translators, six from each tribe of Israel, so they all had their own representative, and they translated it. This translation is important because we get a lot of things from it. Jesus wouldn't be called the Christ without the Septuagint. For those of us who aren't familiar with this, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is Christos. Uh, it comes from um, a word I can't pronounce in Greek, which essentially meant anointed one. But we took it and made it into English. We called it Christ, Jesus the Christ. He is the anointed one. Other words we get, like evangelism or gospel, the evangelion, that comes from the Greek, that comes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So this version has impacted us in the way we view and speak about Jesus and theology. Now, since these are the scriptures that Jesus and the early church utilized, that's why, like I said, when they're quoting the Old Testament, there can be some differences. I want to show you one example. Turn, if you have a Bible, to Luke 4, 18 and 19. And I'll get to why this matters. Some of us might be like, so what? This matters. We'll get to it. If you look at Luke 4, 18, and then if you look at Jesus, if you recount this, Jesus is coming into the temple. This is right when he's about to start his ministry. He's, he opens up the scroll of Isaiah, and he's, he reads Isaiah 61. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay. Then, if you jump over to where it's actually quoted, Isaiah 61. I'll give you a moment if you want to flip there. But Isaiah 61 is what Jesus is quoting. Now, in your English Bibles, your Isaiah translation is going to be from what we now have the Hebrew version, not just the Greek version. So, if you look at Isaiah 61, the prophecy that Jesus is reading and saying, I'm fulfilling right now, it says, The Lord God's Spirit is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim release for the captives, and liberation for prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do you notice a difference? Anyone able to see it? Jesus adds a line. If you look at Luke 4, Jesus adds and recovery of sight to the blind. Now Jesus is quoting verbatim, he's quoting the scroll. You know that because in verse 20 he rolls up the scroll of Isaiah the scroll they had in his temple that he visited. And he adds a line. Is that an error? Is Jesus adding something to Scripture? Well, it seems like he's actually, from what Luke's recording here, he's quoting word for word, reading the scroll that the temple had there. And then he also condensed another line there, but it still is a little more. But for one thing, he added recovery of sight to the blind. That's an interesting component. Notice the differences there. He rearranges those two lines, and then he adds it that isn't in the original text. Another example of this would be Mark 7:67 and Isaiah 29:13. Um, this example, I'm not going to read it, but it, it's not exactly the same thing where they're adding, but the rewording is very drastic. It's very different. So this begs the question for us, was Jesus misquoting scripture, or most broad, more broadly speaking, does the Bible have errors, inconsistencies? I'm gonna leave that there. More on that when we get to the New Testament. I'm gonna land that plane in a moment, hopefully. So, let's keep going with the Old Testament. Some extended church family includes the writings of the Apocrypha. I don't know if any of you guys have this, but I have a Protestant Bible, not a Catholic Bible, and it has the Apocrypha in the middle. Uh, Catholic Bibles will also have the Apocrypha spread into the Old Testament. They won't separate it out. Now, we've kind of had this in three different major uh, streams of thought in Christendom. Yeah, you've got the Protestant world where we recognize the 66 books. The Catholic world adds a few more writings, and they're integrated into the Old Testament. And then you have churches 
in the east, uh, of the Eastern Orthodox tradition, but they're kind of spread out all over North Africa, Southwest Asia. There's quite a few different versions of what their Old Testament includes and whether they consider some inspired or not. So, Protestants traditionally have chosen to still read the Apocrypha, but not view it as God's inspired word. Uh, unfortunately, if you're familiar with Protestant Reformation at all in the 16th century, basically, we kind of had this, if the Catholics do this side, the Roman Catholics do this side, we're going to do this. And so a lot of Protestants just threw out the Apocrypha totally as like, let's not even read it ever. Whereas I think there's a kind of a middle balance where there's still writings that hold important, valuable information and even information that can be encouraging and edifying. But it just isn't, we don't believe it to be inspired by God. And there can be more reason on that uh, a little later. But essentially, Orthodox churches include even more writings. They include up to 15, and they actually consider them part of the canon. So, why the differences between the Old Testament canons? First, if you look at your table of contents again, the order is totally different than the Hebrew Bible. We change the order a lot. If you look at the Hebrew Scriptures, actually, they technically only have 24 writings in their Old Testament. Why is that? Because they actually compi uh, combined some of them. We kind of separated. I would, I would actually argue that we separated them. So 1 and 2 Samuel is actually one book. 1 and 2 Kings is actually one book. Chronicles, one book. Then they considered the 12 prophets, latter prophets, the minor prophets, as one writing just in one book. So they would count them as 24 pieces of writing, but they have them in a totally different order. We see it, Luke, uh, Jesus kind of highlights it in Luke 24:44, um, where he refers to this, this ordering, this way that they broke down the teaching, uh, the Old Testament, the teaching, the prophets, and the writings. Jesus refers to it as the teaching, the prophets, and the Psalms. But this is what we refer to as the Tanakh. It's kind of this, it's this term that you don't really need to know, but it's the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim, which was the teaching, the prophets, and the writings. That's how they broke down the scriptures. They didn't have to be in a certain order, and this is part of what we're talking about, where the Bible just wasn't like coming down, like, here you go, in an exact order. It is God-inspired, but there is human nature to it. There is human influence in writing and character based on the different authors. There's very personal details involved sometimes. And this is just one example that it, it wasn't so much we rearranged these uh, later on, uh, centuries later. But later, yeah, we, we rearranged them as the Pentateuch, the history, that's Joshua through Esther, into poetry, that's Job through the Songs of Solomon, and then the writings, Isaiah through Malachi. Now there's these additional writings that we do not in our faith tradition consider as a part of the inspired word of God, but like I said, a lot of Christian history has still utilized them. We get some intercanonical in between the Old and New Testament, we get a lot of understanding of what happened there through these books. It's where a lot of history comes, uh, to, uh, where we gain that understanding. So if you're unfamiliar with these, these are additions to the book of Esther, it went a little longer. Uh, essentially, the book of Esther doesn't mention God at all, and there's an addition that kind of adds a little bit, that makes it a little bit more about God. There's Baruch, Bell and the Dragon, great name, sounds like an indie band name. Uh, Ecclesiasticus, or Ben Sira, 1st and 2nd Esdras, Judith, Letter of Jeremiah, 1st through 4th Maccabees, The Prayer of Ezariah, Prayer of Manasseh, there's a 151st Psalm, there's a book called Susanna, Nice, you're in it. Uh, and Tobit, but you just missed the canon. I'm sorry, Susanna. Uh, and then the wisdom of Solomon. These are all in the Apocrypha. And a variation of these are considered sometimes in other Christian faith traditions as being inspired. The Roman Catholic Church technically doesn't view them as inspired, but they incorporate it into their Old Testament canon as secondary but still worthy of incorporating into their daily worship and even preaching through and things of that sort. And some Protestant people utilize these today. So, a, key, a few keynotes for us here before we turn to the New Testament. <coughs> One of the reasons why we don't count these, 
One, Jesus and the New Testament authors never directly quoted the writings. There are, however, a few references and allusions to them, but pretty much all the other writings are referenced in the other New Testament writings that we have. That's why. So if someone ever asks you, aren't there these extra books? How come you guys throw them out? Well, one, that, that's part of the criteria. However, second, the early church fathers, they quoted them a lot. They are just saturated in their early church writings. However, they're still distinguished from Scripture. Now, this wasn't settled right away. St. Augustine, one of the guys that we look to a lot, a great thinker in our faith, argued that these writings should be considered canonical. And then St. Jerome argued they should be what's called ecclesiastical, meaning we should read them in worship, we should read them for edification and understanding of our people's history, however they are not inspired by God. So they're still secondary. secondary. Kind of like when I quote some sort of New Testament scholar or anything like that. Essentially, quote them on that. It's an informed, it's not just anybody's voice, but it's also not God's voice through that person. Well, what happened? Church history, we went with Augustine. We viewed them as canonical until the Reformation. And that's when uh, Martin Luther and, well, Martin Luther in the Protestant Reformation, if you're familiar with this, he returned us to the 39 writings we view now. However, Luther and Calvin quoted these writings a ton. They still utilized them. However, they would never form a belief about God, about Jesus, about the way of faith, only based on something found in these writings and not in any other writing. So, for example, if it, well, one example is purgatory. That's where the, the apocryphal writings are where the doctrine of purgatory comes from um, and that view for the Roman Catholic Church. It's from those writings. It's not found, that concept is not found elsewhere, and so we don't affirm that view because it's only found in the apocryphal writings. They would only reference them to affirm what was found in the other 39 writings as well as the New Testament. Now, eventually... Well, what do we as Anabaptists think, think of these writings? Well, I, I would essentially summarize, similar to Jerome and what we were saying there. Like I said, I have a Bible that has it in the middle. Not all my Bibles have it. Not every translation translates the Apocrypha. But I do think it is valuable to have. There are some interesting historical events that happened. It's a way we can know what happened in between Malachi and Matthew. Um, it's a way we can know how the Jewish people became what's called Hellenized, meaning we start, where they changed their language from Hebrew to Greek. They assimilated to Greek culture. And so that's why in the New Testament world, the Jewish people start knowing and they started becoming meshing a little bit more like Greek. Whereas the Pharisees were like, no, let's totally hold the Hebrew. And that's where you kind of get the split of the various sects of um, Judaism. Another thing you get in those writings is the Maccabean Revolt, which we don't need to get into, but essentially... I would still view them as valuable writings, but they are not the inspired word of God. They can be encouraging, just like any other writer from any other Christian uh, that we read. So, let's sh shift to the New Testament. This should be a little quicker, because it's a little shorter. Uh, New Testament, 27 writings. If you look at your table of contents again. So, the way we laid this out, you've got the four Gospels. We laid them out... Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, in order of um, what we thought came first. We now know that Mark came before, was written before Matthew. You okay? Okay. Um, we know that Mark now came before Matthew, but we used to think that Matthew came first, so that's why we ordered it that way. Then you get the, the other narrative, uh, Acts, that is part two to Luke's gospel, Luke's account of Jesus' life. Uh, and then you get the letters of Paul. And they are laid out in order from longest to shortest. So first they start out Paul's letters written to people, people groups, churches. So all the way down to Thessalonians. And then you get Paul's letters to individual people. Timothy, Timothy, Titus, Philemon. Then they threw Hebrews in here. Because for some point, at some point, some people thought Paul wrote Hebrews. Uh, we now are pretty certain that it, it wasn't. We really don't know who wrote, wrote Hebrews. There's a lot of theories on it. But we just kind of tacked it right there because we're like, if it's him, let's, let's keep it right by his other writings. But we don't think it's, it's his uh, writing style. Then we get what's called, we call these the Catholic letters, meaning the universal, the other church letters. These were written to many churches. So you get 
Jesus' little brother James, not the Apostle James, but Jesus' little brother James. You get first and second Peter, first through third John, another one of Jesus' little brother Jude or Judas, and the, not that Judas, this is his brother Judas. And then you get the Apocalypse, Revelation. That's how the New Testament was laid out. Now, in recent decades, there's arisen some other extra writings that some people are like, hey, what are these? If we're familiar with Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, it kind of popularized these writings, many of which are referred to as the Gnostic Gospels. Um, we refer to these as what's called the pseudepigrapha. Pseudo meaning it's a pseudonym, it's written, um, it claims to be written by someone and it's not them. While that was a common practice, even some of Paul's letters are not actually written by Paul, but he's having someone write for him. That's a common practice, and it's still, in that day, in that culture, it is still written by Paul. That's how they viewed it. Maybe today we might, actually maybe not. There's a lot of like, how does Stephen King write 10 books a year? Come on. Um, or, or that guy you like, your guy. Yeah, James Patterson. I'm really skeptical that he's written all those books. He's gotta have a ghostwriter. <laughs> But still, it's a, it's a fairly common practice. But the difference is these writings have been dated a couple centuries removed. So they're often two to 300 years removed. We're, we're pretty sure we're able to verify that these are not dated near the first century. Now they've tried to use these and, as an argument to question the reliability of the New Testament. This is why it's important for us to understand this when people when these questions come up, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, all, all these different things. Did Jesus, Jesus have a wife? Um, things of that sort. Some of these things come up in these, what we would call later writings, these Gnostic Gospels. And even, I'll, I'll make a note of this too, in the early church, there are other writings that the early church debated on whether or not they were canonical. They were still similar to the Apocrypha, seen as worthwhile, but they weren't canon. And we'll get to that in a sec. So how do we distinguish the writings? There's four criteria, four reasons why one writing made it and another didn't. We've got apostolicity, orthodoxy, antiquity, and Catholicity. So first one, apostolicity. This means that they were written by an apostle, meaning an eyewitness of Jesus, or someone who was a companion of an eyewitness of Jesus. So if you look at the, New the, the Gospels, for example, Matthew, Levi, that is his name, right? Um, he is an apostle of Jesus. Same with John. Uh, but then you get John Mark, uh, Mark's gospel. That's an, an, a, a, he and Luke are companions of Paul, who is an apostle. He is an eyewitness of Jesus. So they believe that Paul has been, um, they're writing down a lot of what Paul has been preaching as an eyewitness of Jesus. That's one of the metrics. So it had to be written by an apostle or someone who was a close companion of an apostle. Second, orthodoxy, meaning these writings both affirm the writings of the Hebrew Bible as well as affirm the gospel of Jesus and his kingdom. So they had to be in line with what was already, it had to be congruent with what the church was already affirming and believing, what they believed the apostles were teaching that was passed on from Jesus. Antiquity, meaning the date, that's what that time was referred to. It had to be dated earlier. This is why writings such as First Clement, the Didache, the Shepherd of Hermas, we have some of these writings, some of them have been lost, but they're not included because their dates were a little bit later. So we eventually started sorting them out as like, this is too removed from the time of Jesus and the early church. <clears throat> and then the last metric was Catholicity, meaning it was widely Catholic, doesn't mean just Roman Catholic, Catholic means universal. So it was widely accepted by the early church. That's the Catholicity of it. So it had to be, uh, start becoming organically being affirmed by the church. By this point in the first couple centuries, the church kind of went west and east, and that's where we still see a lot of Eastern Orthodox Church can have a different uh, canon still. Um, and then Western churches were more uh, ingrained in Roman culture and so forth. But regardless, over the first couple centuries, they had to be affirmed by a majority of the universal church at that time. So for example, that's why the church in Rome, they wanted First Clement and the Shepherd of Hermas, whereas the Eastern Church didn't want Second Peter. Uh, the Eastern Church lost and Rome lost. So Second Peter got in, First Clement and Shepherd of Hermas didn't. 
early on. They, eventually, it took many councils over centuries, but still, we came to an understanding of, oh, this is dated earlier. The, these writings are dated later. <coughs> so, regarding the writings that were originally viewed as inspired by some of the early church, unfortunately, when determining whether or not these books were inspired or not, we kind of went, are they inspired? If not, let's throw them out. Heretical. And that's kind of why we've lost some, right? There's letters that, there's other letters that we hear of in, even in the New Testament, like a letter from Barnabas, or things of that sort, where they're just kind of gone. Well, we didn't preserve them as well because they weren't scripture, and so we just kind of lost them. Um, the question always arises, and in, in usually with like high schoolers or, or stuff, they're like, what happens if we find one of those writings now? Great question. We'll deal with it if it comes up. Um, but we haven't found any new writing. So, yeah, we'll cross that bridge if we ever get there, if we ever discover an old writing, but I suspect we won't. So, as we finish up what the New Testament is, before we get into why this matters, let's return back to what I introduced earlier and just kind of left there. The potential discrepancies that we mentioned earlier with Jesus, quoting Isaiah 61 and Luke 4. Let's turn, we're going to look at three gospel passages. Matthew 20, Mark 10, and Luke 18. So I'm going to flip through them. If you want to turn there, you can, or you can just listen. Matthew 20, 29 through 34. If you look at that passage, these are all recording the same event. So Matthew 20, verse 29 Jesus, uh, Matthew records, as Jesus and his disciples were going out of Jericho, <clears throat> a large crowd followed them. So they're going out of Jericho, large crowd. When two blind men sitting alone the, along the road heard that Jesus was passing by, they shouted, Show us mercy, Lord, son of David. Now the crowd scolded them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted even louder, Show us mercy, Lord, son of David. Jesus stopped in his tracks and called to them, what do you want me to do for you, he asked. Lord, we want to see, they replied. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes immediately. They were able to see, and they followed him. Okay, so to summarize here, they are going, he is leaving Jericho. There are two blind men here. Now, jump over to Mark 10. Mark 10, same story in verse 46. Mark 10 46. Mark starts out, Jesus and his followers came into Jericho. So they're not leaving Jericho, they're going into Jericho now. As Jesus was leaving Jericho, okay, so now he's leaving again, together with his disciples and a sizable crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, Timaeus' son. So there's one blind beggar, not two anymore, was sitting beside the road. When they heard that Jesus of Nazareth was there, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, show mercy on me. Many scolded him, telling him to be quiet, but he shouted even louder. Uh, Jesus stopped and said, call him forward. They called the blind man, be encouraged, get up, he's calling you. So, Jesus stopped and said, yeah. And so they call him and they say, be encouraged, get up, go. he's calling you. Verse 50, throwing his coat to the side, he jumped up and came to Jesus. Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man says, teacher, I want to see. Jesus said, go, your faith healed you. At once he was able to see, and he began to follow Jesus on the way. Now, last one is Luke 18. We're doing some fun little Bible study exercises here. I love it. Luke 18, verse 35. Now, this is the one where the direction is different. As Jesus came to Jericho, it doesn't say he's leaving. A certain blind man was sitting beside the road begging. When the man, so again, one person, not two, as Matthew's account, the crowd passing by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus the Nazarene, the Nazarene was passing by. The blind man shouted, Jesus, son of God, show mercy. As you can see, this is the same story. And even then, if you look at verse 40, Jesus stopped and called for the man to be brought to him. When he was present, Jesus asked, they kind of 
kind of omit some details, whereas Mark's account has the apostles, the disciples, calling this man. Jesus says, call him, and then they call him. So, one person or two, going into Jericho or leaving Jericho? They're different, right? But they're the same story. So does the Bible have errors? To view these details as errors would impose uh, our modern understanding or perception of what history is and narrative onto an ancient Near Eastern culture and their writings and their style of uh, their story, oral storytelling. Meaning, the point of this account is not how many people there were and whether they were going in or out. The point of this account is what? That Jesus actually healed them. Now for some of us, that might be like a little like disheartening. Like, wait, if they're two different, if one says one person and one says two, doesn't that mean it's not true? That the Bible's got an error here? No. I think it's imposing how we view history, how we view modern history on the way they recorded history, the way they recorded what happened and didn't happen. Now, this is how the human mind works. For example, if, if you were to ask my wife and I, the story of how we met, how we began dating, how we got engaged, and so on, those early years, we would have radically different accounts of what happened. You know, it would be pretty different. You're like, radically? It would be pretty different. We have different vantage points. We have different perceptions. We have different ideas. Does this mean that truth is relative? No. However, we may have a different purpose of the story, but the main details are still the same. Neither of us are questioning whether or not we actually dated, whether or not we actually got engaged, whether or not we actually are married still, right? We're not questioning that? Yeah, we're not questioning that. The main points are still happening. Our perception, our understanding of these things is different. But even still, it's still not a fair comparison because again, the way history is recorded, the way narrative was recorded back then is just different. And so when we come to that and say, this says two, this one says one, both must be false. That's not a fair characterization in a way, a fair lens to view these writings through. Because neither of those details are the point of the account of Luke and Matthew. Similarly, if you take Matthew 1's genealogy of Jesus into account, it's incomplete. It's missing people. Does that mean the Bible is lying? Does that mean the Bible is not true? No. That's not the method by which they are uh, recording. That's not the purpose of the genealogy in Matthew 1. There's a lot, all throughout the scriptures, a reason for certain new numbers that don't necessarily indicate the way, they don't translate as easily to our modern day because we don't view numbers in that same manner. But does that mean Matthew is deceiving us by recording the genealogy of Jesus differently? No, it just means we need to try and understand why he recorded it in that manner. What details, what literary reasons is he trying, uh, using that device for? What, what is he trying to communicate to us recording that lineage in that manner? So that's why Article 4 specifically claims that we view the scriptures, quote, as the fully reliable and trustworthy standard for Christian faith and life. Notice that it doesn't say with regards to necessarily to history, cosmology, biology, and so forth. Why not? Because it's not the focus of the writings of the scriptures. The scriptures are focused on God, his redemptive love for his creation, his people, throughout their history, demonstrated most notably in Jesus of, of Nazareth, and bring brought to completion through the working of his spirit. Sometimes we come to the Bible and ask questions. What does the Bible say about this? That's not fair because the Bible didn't intend to answer that question. We have a lot of questions now that they didn't have then, and therefore they didn't plan to write that. It's why I've utilized this example before, why the Bible talks of seemingly a flat earth. Is the scripture lying that the earth has an end, the ends of the earth? No, the scripture is not lying. God is speaking to those people in their pre-modern perception of 
human reality, that they believe the earth is flat, and so he's going to speak to them as if the earth is flat. That doesn't make the Bible false or misleading. God is speaking to a particular people, through a particular people, and to a particular culture. So, a few miscellaneous details before we get to why this matters. Um, things I found interesting. Chapters. In case you don't realize, chapters weren't introduced in the Bible until 1200s. Uh, we never had numbers. So that's why often when they're quoting scriptures, there's, they're just kind of quoting bits. They're not quoting line for line often unless they're reading a direct scroll. Sometimes they're just quoting um, variations of the prophet out of order. Verses came not till after the Reformation. We didn't add verse numbers. And then the other question I, I kind of reached out to some of you asking, what are your biggest questions about the scriptures? And I asked a couple non-Christian people. Usually the question is, why are there so many Bibles? Why are there so many Bible translations? You know, like the Book of Mormon, there's one Book of Mormon. The Quran, there's like one Quran. Why are there so many Bibles? It just seems crazy. And why are there so many churches? Those are, that's another question, but that's for another message. So, why are there so many Bible translations? Um, I would say there are not so many Bibles. There is one Bible, but there are many translations. So, what that means is, they each serve a purpose. Now, the scriptures come to us, literally, we're seven stages removed from the original writings. There's like the author, then there's the manuscript, earlier manuscripts, and there's manuscripts manuscript collections, critical editions, translation committees, and then we finally get to English translations of those translations, of translate, like, like, it's very intense process. It takes lifelong scholars to sort this through. So why does that matter? Well, each translation that we have serves kind of a different purpose. They all kind of have a different aim. They are all trying to be faithful to the original translation, however, they're often still aiming to translate it for a specific audience. So just like we have English translations, right? So right away eliminates a lot of people in the world. But then you get different translations like, uh, Josh, I believe I have a slide. Do I have a slide up for this? Yeah, can we throw this up? Oh, not this one. Here we go. This is like a majority of the major English translations right now, and this is just kind of help, helpful spectrum. I've got a printout over there if you want it for later. But essentially, they kind of have a different aim. So some translations will try and be more paraphrased, meaning thought for thought. Some, uh, well, even more thought for thought than that. They'll take a big chunk of scripture and try and contextualize it more to the modern audience. Then you kind of get more in the middle. Thought for thought, mixed with a dynamic equivalent. But then on the left, you get very like, I'm going to translate word for word what this says, even if it doesn't make sense to the audience as much as possible. Now, those are extreme analogies, but that can be kind of how it is. Now, if any of us are bilingual at all, if you understand, that can be a tricky um, practice, whether or not you've ever tried to translate a joke from a different language or really anything. It can be a tricky endeavor to help someone totally understand, because sometimes, like, I'm son of a, Spanish, uh, of a Mexican immigrant. I'm the only grandkid who didn't learn Spanish. And so everyone knows the Spanish jokes around the family parties. And everyone's cracking up when they're cracking the jokes. And I'm like, Dad, what'd they say? And he's like, it doesn't translate. Like, I can kind of, and he'd kind of try and tell it to me. And then he'd be like, but it's not funny in English. It loses it. Now imagine that, but our Greek writings are almost 2,000 years removed. Our Hebrew writings can be 3,000 years removed. And so that's why there's a constant endeavor of biblical scholarship of teens that every generation is constantly working at trying to help the next generation of Christians understand, contextualize, understand as language evolves and adapts, understand the Word of God better. Now, what do I recommend with these? Uh, what are we to do with them? I recommend, just like the Bible Project, they recommend you read a few different ones. Have a few different translations, and ideally, have a few all over. I kind of have... I actually have most of these. Um, and I like to read a variety of them because it helps no translation is perfect. This is 
this, the English translation, is not the actual, like, original word. It is a translation of the original word. And so thus, it's valuable to have and, be, and familiarize yourself with different translations. Um, some people, I know, I know a couple people who every year they do the year in the Bible reading plan and every year they buy a different translation because they just want to get into, see how they translate things differently. But even still, there's some translations that kind of have their own um, tribal bents to, um, for example, like the, the tribe I came from, utilize the ESV, it's a complementarian translation, so they, they, they very much, um, they don't actually have any female translators. Um, they don't believe, they believe in male and female equality, but male headship. And so thus, their translation is translated in that manner where they have gender not neutral pronouns even when it should be gender neutral, or arguably, that's, a, that's the debate. Um, and so even this uh, chart here has that, that little asterisk, it tells you which ones have gender neutral and so forth. So if you're interested in that, there's a couple copies over there, kind of gives you some ideas. We're all human, we're all fallible, including translation committees, and that's why it's helpful to have different and familiarize ourselves with different translations. But I encourage us to read a few in a diverse amount. <clears throat> I think the last question that was asked is, do we have any original documents? No. However, we have thousands of excerpts of close writings within a century or two we also have good evidence that our transmission of manuscripts is very, um, very extraordinary, very reliable. We do, there are many errors, and you'll, you'll see atheists or even Dawkins in his book, he, he questions the reliability of the scriptures because he quotes, there's thousands of errors within certain uh, um, manuscripts. Yeah, most of them are capitalization, commas, misspelling, a misordering. Count it as an error. Does that change the meaning of the text? No, just like we saw where Jesus is quoting a different scripture than the Old Testament scripture that we have, it doesn't change the meaning and purpose of the text. And therefore, uh, that's, that's kind of a, a lame argument in my opinion. Um, okay. Aside from that, there's so much more. But if you're someone who's interested in the topic like this, like textual criticism, if this is something that you're like, I could stay up all night reading books like this. Let me know. There's probably like two of you. Um, and I'd love to talk more with you and recommend more stuff. Because it, it's interesting. But for the rest of us who probably don't care about that, it's okay. The last passage before why does this matter. You got passages like John 7, end of 7, early 8, where it says in your Bible, if you turn there, this isn't in the original Bible. This isn't in the earliest manuscripts. You got it at the end of Mark 2 where it says the ending essentially is missing. What do we do with that? Why is that in there? Um, some scholars, it's kind of debatable, and, and basically we keep them in for church history, historical purposes. Some scholars refer to it as, they, they idealize it as inspired. Others think it at least is something valued in tradition that we do think something like this happened, and so we keep it there. But yeah, John 7, 53, randomly it starts on the last verse of chapter 7, goes to 8, 11. Your Bible... I think every Bible except the King James, I think, notes that this was not in the earliest of manuscripts we have. Um, okay, so why does this matter? Why did I just give you all this? That's a lot. <laughs> um, I think it's important as like Katrina's face is like, this is a lot, that's no, okay. But I think at the end of the day, it's valuable for us to at least have an understanding of what is in here and have a, re a realistic perspective of what it is, that it is God-inspired, it is God-speaking, but in and through humans. So there's characteristics, there's often things that maybe we don't see it as being this perfect, polished thing that we hold it to, but, so it's a very realistic, it's a very human book, but it's a very godly book. I think sometimes, my, one of my buddies back in the Northwest, um, at his seminary, I remember he said, his seminary professor was like, did this crazy illustration, he would do it for our kids all the time at youth, that he's like, people think Bible inspiration is like, Peter's just like walking around one day, and he's like, hold on, something's coming, like, hold on, give me a scroll, and then it's like, and they're just like, like this, and it's like, no, that's not how it happened, like, 
God inspired them, but it wasn't like all of a sudden they woke up at the end of writing it, and then it's like, whoa, what did I do? Oh my gosh, the scriptures. That's, that's not how it went down. Um, but we sometimes get that perception, maybe not that, like, maybe not that much of a character like that. But no, it is a God-inspired book, but it's still very human. That's why in Paul's letters you see very personal little even interactions with them. I love when Paul's like, hey, remember to bring my books and my cloak. Like, what? Why did that end up in our Bible? But it's in there. That's a Bible verse. I should quote that to people. <laughs> That's my favorite verse. Bring me my jacket and my books. Okay, why does this matter, though? It's important. It is very important for us to understand, have a realistic perception of what the scriptures are and aren't. Why? Because we affirm the authority of scripture. As N.T. Wright says, this phrase is shorthand for believing in God's authority exercised through scripture. Now, even for us, we're familiar with scripture written, but uh, in the coming weeks, in, in a couple of the new upcoming articles, we'll talk a little bit more about how scripture was also oral, and they were not seen as totally different in that culture. You know, the, the written word is a newer phenomenon in recent human history in the last two millennia. But for most people in church history, it was mainly something we memorized, we articulated, we told stories, stories of, kind of like how, man, your grandpa tells you stories around the campfire of your grandparents, of his grandparents, and so forth. And you're carrying on these stories, you're carrying on these legends, your, your uh, genealogy, your family heritage. Similarly, that's kind of how scripture and stories were written. That's how we attribute Genesis to Moses, right? Moses wasn't there during Genesis, but somehow he wrote that. At least we, some think he wrote it, right? So how did those get there? They, they're tales, they're stories that have been transposed and handed down through oral recitation. But I want to return to our verse as to why the scriptures matter. Our verse in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All scripture is inspired by God. It's useful for teaching, for reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. Similarly, the author of Hebrews wrote in 3, starting in verse 12, it said, Indeed, the word of God is living, it's active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and before him no creature is hidden, but all are naked and laid bare to the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. So it's living and active. This is what we mean by inspired. The Spirit is still speaking to us through the writings of the Scriptures. That's why when you when you read the scriptures, especially as a Jesus follower in particular, that is one of the main criteria for understanding God's word is the spirit of God alive and active in you. It is why for years I read the Bible as a non-Christian, but then when I read it on the other side of faith and in, the, in Jesus and his resurrection, totally different understanding of what this is. That's the spirit of God alive in and through us, working in and through us, helping us see and know God, it is active now, this doesn't mean that God can change his mind. We see this in some churches today where we use the phrase, God is still speaking. It's usually on a, on a rainbow flag or things of that sort. Um, we, we don't affirm that view of interpretation of the scriptures. Um, if, you, if you do, we can talk more about it. If you'd like to dialogue about it or are curious why this doesn't lead to that, because we do believe that God is unchanging. His character is unchanging. His values are unchanging. However, there are some intricate things, right? We've seen humanity perhaps misinterpret what God said or even place value in areas that God hadn't. We've seen this throughout history as humans have discovered more about ethics, right? Uh, you, know, you think of human slavery and things of that sort. We think of colonialism, we think of cosmology, we think of, yeah, whether the sun was the center of the solar system or the earth was the center of the solar system. Those types of things, as we make these discoveries, we start to discuss and figure out, oh, the church misunderstood this, or God was speaking to us in this way, because at that point, that's how humans saw the world. And so he met us there. That doesn't discredit 
or make the Bible inaccurate. How was that received when a Christian brother realized, posed that the earth is not the center of the universe, but the sun is? Anyone know how that was received? Not very well. How was it, how was it received? <laughs> okay, well, I don't know about that one. Uh, but yes, he was definitely excommunicated. Uh, two of them, well, anyways, not well. Some of these guys potentially going to death, at least social death, academic death, their career death, but even to the point of <laughs> excommunication from the land. And this was not but a few centuries ago. So, uh, similarly, biologists and neurologists discovered that our thoughts and emotions don't come from our organs, but the scriptures write like that, that, that our thoughts and feelings come from like our organs down here. We've, we've figured out that no, our thoughts come from our brain. Back then, they didn't know that. They had no idea what a brain was. Does that mean the scriptures are wrong because it doesn't convey modern, our modern understanding of, the, of our bodies and neurology well? No. It is, again, the Spirit of God working in... Because imagine if the Spirit was like, hey, in, write this, like, in your brain, you think this. And he's like, what the heck's my brain? Like, <laughs> the writer would have been like, this doesn't make sense. I have no idea what a brain is. Or imagine if he said, hey, on the other side of the planet, at the bottom of the globe. What do you mean a globe? Isn't the earth flat? No. The Spirit of God wrote in and through and to a particular people. So, that's where we say living and active, but at the same time, we do understand that there are times where God, as we understand more things, we can not quickly, but we can test and discern and try and figure out, hey, have we perhaps misunderstand what God spoke here or how humanity has interpreted this? It's not God who's changing. It is perhaps the Spirit changing us to see his creation, his creative order, a little differently. And in so doing, seeing him a little differently. But Hebrews also says the scriptures are able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. As Paul noted earlier, the scriptures help us see how our character can be incongruent with God's character. So then the purpose of scripture can be laid out, and I want to recommend this. If any of you want to delve more into what the Bible is, this is like my favorite little entry-level book on what the Bible is. Seven things I wish Christians knew about the Bible. Michael F. Byrd, New Testament scholar from Australia. Really great guy. Really legit, helpful, entry-level book. Um, yeah, it gives you a lot of background as to how and what the scriptures are and aren't. But he lays out four things that are encouraging for us and what the scriptures can do, the purpose of them. It's for one, for us to know God relationally, not just know about God, but actually know him. You see this in Ephesians 1.17 where Paul is praying that through this revelation that we would know God more. Two, that it would provoke faith in us, that it would stir up faith in Jesus. That's why in John 20, verse 31, as I'm slowly turning there, sorry. John writes in John 20, verse 31, it says, but these things are written so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's Son, and that believing you will have life in his name. This is John's conclusion before he has his uh, prologue in chapter 21, but that was essentially his ending. All these things that I wrote, this account of Jesus' life, is so that you will have faith in him, that you can be assured of his life, death, and resurrection. The third thing, so we've got know God relationally, not just about him, but actually know him in, re in relationship, have faith in Jesus, and then that it would stir up love for God and others. As James says, in James, uh, he says, faith without deeds is dead, but in James 2.8, he says of this, you do well when you, re when you really fulfill the royal law found in Scripture. Love your neighbor as yourself. But when you show favoritism, you are committing a sin, and by the same law, you are exposed as a lawbreaker. Saying that the Scriptures point us to the main point of the law, loving God through loving your neighbor 
as yourself. That's what Jesus even summarized. And that's a different passage, but we can get to that. Well, you can look that up later. And then lastly, the scripture's point is to give us hope to endure our days on this side of death. Romans 15.4, Paul writes, whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we could have hope through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures. And then Paul writes, may the God of endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude towards each other, similar to Christ Jesus' attitude. That way you can glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ together with one voice. So to summarize, the points being know God, to stir up faith in God, which leads to love, affections for him and for others, and it's fuel in the tank for us to endure. Endure following the way of Jesus. Before we conclude, are there any questions? <laughs> Kathy. Two, eight, and nine. No problem. Any other questions about the scriptures? Uh, what we believe, what I believe, what I don't know? Uh, anything like that? Was that a fire hose? Susanna. No? Okay, cool. Great. All right. Well, if you have more questions, there's a lot. I cut a ton of stuff and I feel bad, but at the same time, I realized this morning, this should have been a whole thing. Um, but anyways, well, like I said, I recommend seven things I wish Christians knew about the Bible. And if you're interested in actually learning how to read the Bible better, in light of these types of truths. Well, we're talking through that here on Sunday. We're talking through it on Thursdays each week. We're asking questions like this as we read the scriptures. We're trying to get to what God was saying in and through those people to that particular culture. But then I also recommend, I've recommended it before, uh, that little book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. That's a great resource for learning how to read the scriptures. I'd also say The Lost World of Scriptures by John Walton. Um, Aaron seems to be eating that up right now. So, yeah. <laughs> that phrase we've been saying that God, the scriptures are written for us, but not to us. And so we have to do the work of learning who they were written to and how they were written, why they were written to those people, and then translating that to now contextualizing that to now. Well, to summarize, Roger Olson, he's a New Testament scholar, he wrote, other evangelicals and I, include myself among these, view the Bible's main purpose as spiritual transformation by bringing us into saving communion with God. It infallibly functions as God's uniquely inspired medium, is an instrument of revealing God's identity, character, and will to us for the purpose of transforming our lives. Yes, it contains information, but it always has, quote unquote, new light to break forth as the Holy Spirit uses it and our faith together to continually transform us into the image of Jesus. It implies doctrines, but is not itself a textbook of doctrines. We create doctrines based on it, usually in order to counter misuses of scripture by heretics and cultists but it is not itself primarily meant to be a handbook of doctrines. It is itself primarily meant to be a great story, a theodrama in which God is the main character that can bring us to transforming communion with God. I'm gonna invite Aaron up to conclude with a song. While this morning was somewhat heady, I do, want us to hear and heed Olson's words, that it's not just meant to be up here, this intellectual, I kind of understand what's in the scriptures, but no, understanding what's in it helps us meet and know and commune with God. And by knowing God, we begin to know ourselves more. We were made in his image. We were made to know and reflect 
and image him in all creation. And so by knowing and understanding him more, his character, his will, his plan, his kingdom, we start knowing ourselves more, seeing where we fall short, praising God for the grace we have in Jesus, for the ways that we do fall short, but then being led by the Spirit, right? Seeing how the Spirit leads us and can change us and call us to follow the way of Jesus and to new life here on this side of death. As we uh, transition to a time of response, I encourage us to reflect on what the Spirit has been teaching you in this time. Perhaps confess any ways that your thinking, your feeling, your acting have been incongruent with God and His character, with the way of Jesus and His kingdom. But at the same time, be assured that you are forgiven. You are forgiven in Jesus. You've been pardoned from the power, the penalty of sin, and freed by the Spirit to live like Jesus. Uh, We invite you to give so that the mission goes forward, and we encourage you to sing for God's worthy of our praise. Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. While we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed, we believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship is to be experienced weekly, in person, within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks.